the church. Uh, and the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and it's going to be removed from the earth at the rapture of the church, I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Uh, and we will talk a little bit about that in the message here as well. But I picked this uh, particular letter from the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, because it, uh, especially the last part of the promises are some of my favorite promises. But I, I'll, again, because of time, we won't read every single verse just ahead of time, but we'll read them as we go through them. If you look at the timeline, we put up a similar timeline last night. You have Israel in the Old Testament. Now Israel's coming back. It's not going away, uh, but we're now in the age of the church. You see a church there, sometimes called the age of the spirit or the age of grace, sometimes it's called. Then the rapture of the church, and then there's this trib that lasts for seven years, tribulation period, time of testing, our passage will tell us here in a minute. And then there's the kingdom, which lasts forever, but there's the thousand-year kickoff party called the millennium. Okay, so uh, that's the timeline, and you see where we are uh, with the church. And in this passage, Jesus identifies, knows, loves, promises, guarantees. Those are generally positive words. And the Philadelphia church uh, is one of only two churches out of the seven that, that Jesus does not heavily criticize. In fact, he doesn't say anything bad about them. Now, if he were in, you know, I live in the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania, a different city. Jesus would probably have some bad things to say. Someone says, okay, we're already in the kingdom. Well, I, if we're already in the kingdom, somebody forgot to tell Philadelphia. <laughs> or Chicago. Or New York. Uh, we are not in the Messianic kingdom. It has not come yet. We're awaiting the Messiah for the Messianic kingdom. Okay. Uh, but in this letter, this is a different city. And he's, talking, he's not just talking to the city there. He's talking to the church. It's a pagan city as all these cities were in the Roman Empire. Uh, so we're gonna walk through these positive words for the most part. In verse seven, uh, it says, these things says he who is holy. Okay, Jesus is identifying as he who is holy, that means set apart. And of course he is sinless, but I think it's carrying the idea here of special, he who is True, I think the word true there in the Greek text means genuine. And genuine with respect to what? I think it's his idea of he's the Messiah. Because notice the next part. He who has the key of David. Now who's David? King of Israel. Followed Saul. And he's the one that the Davidic covenant was made with. The Jewish king. The head of Judah. And then the head of all of Israel. Uh, and God promised him that there's going to be uh, his descendants lasting forever, and then there's going to be his throne forever. And so there's coming a day when Jesus will come back and sit literally on an earthly throne, ruling, the idea is ruling in Israel as king of Israel, and by the way, according to Zechariah 14, 9, king of the world. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, right? Revelation 19. So 
and the key of David, Jesus as Messiah, has control over who gets into the coming earthly kingdom of God. I think that's the main point of that. Uh, you can find a passage, uh, I think it's back in Isaiah, uh, where it uh, talks about Shebna, uh, one of the householders who's removed and another guy put in his place. Uh, and the other guy is given the key of David, and he's the, he's the guy under the king who controls it, who kind of controls the house, controls what's going on. And so to have the key of David means control over who enters and who doesn't enter. Uh, and so I think the idea here is that he is the one who is the true, genuine Messiah. In the life, So many false messiahs were being predicted and demonstrated and people claiming to be Messiah during the first century. And that's so like Satan that he would have a lot of counterfeits to try to mess things up uh, right when the true Messiah came. So Jesus is the real Messiah who people must deal with for salvation and deliverance. But then Jesus knows. I have a picture there. I know that looks like Johnny Appleseed. Uh, but it's actually not. It's actually a portrait of one of my favorite people in all of church history. In the 1520s, this was an Anabaptist named Michael Sattler. And there, Anabaptist was a broad term that included all kinds of people, including very bad people. But the biblical Anabaptist, and Michael Sattler was one of the biblical Anabaptists, uh, was very heroic. As a matter of fact, when he became a pastor, and they had a little saying <clears throat> in the Anabaptist communities, and their churches were like, 25 people. And that little saying that when a man, an Anabaptist man, was called to be a pastor, his wife was called to be a widow. And Michael Sattler <clears throat> became the pastor there, and he told his church, <clears throat> he said, one day they're going to come and get me and kill me because both the other Protestants and the Catholics were killing Anabaptists. They wouldn't baptize their children, and to them they treated those people who wouldn't baptize their children like they were Hamas. That's how they thought. They were mean to them. Uh, and he said, they're going to come get me, and they're going to burn me at the stake. That was probably the Catholic region. Some just threw them in with a big... Uh, block around their neck and threw him in the pond. You like immersion, here it is. Or burn you at the stake. That's probably the Catholics who did the most burning at the stake. So they're gonna come get me and they're gonna put me at the stake. And I just want you to know, while the flames are going high, I'm going to lift my fingers to you and touch them like this to prove to you that Jesus is real to me at that moment. He said this before they came to get him. And sure enough, they came to get him, and there's actually a video that you could get that tells this story. And they dragged him between wagons on the ground, they cut his tongue out so he couldn't preach from the stake. That hot tongs nipping at him as he went by on the ground, back and forth, back and forth, before they put him at the stake. 
Then they put him at the stake and tied him up with the ropes and enough of the ropes burned that he was able to lift his fingers and touch them like that. Why did he have to endure that? Because he believed what you and I believe. People like that in that day, that wasn't very popular. And so I put his picture up there. And what does it say about the Philadelphians? Jesus says right at the beginning, I know your, your works, your deeds. I think Michael Sattler will have a high place in God's coming kingdom. I don't know that for sure. I don't decide those things. But I believe he will. And then uh, salvation, I think, is part of that. Say, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Now, that's been interpreted a couple ways, that it's an open door for ministry, and that's possible. But in light of the identification of him as the Messiah, I think the open door statement coming out of Isaiah, it's probably a, a reference that uh, I've, I've allowed you to be part of, uh, of my kingdom. My coming kingdom, you'll be in it. You're saved. Uh, you've come in to the family of God. And no one can shut it. No one can shove you out of my family. And no one can shut you out of your place in my kingdom. I think that's the idea myself. Others uh, disagree with that. And then he uh, says you have a little strength. Now, little there is not a reference that you're weak. A little strength in that you're just a little bit strong. Uh, the idea here is numbers. They're little in numbers. They're a small congregation in a larger pagan town. This, the pagan town is in Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey. And you can actually sign up and get a tour to the seven cities, you know, and, and go on the tour and, and visit this place. I have not been able to do that yet. Uh, and they have kept his word and have not denied his name. They have been faithful to his word and in particular I think the point is when the persecution came they didn't duck it and run away. They stood strong and would not deny his name. Now we know from some of the other churches like Smyrna there were uh, Jewish people persecuting Jewish Christians. The, uh, the, those who were in Judaism would turn in Jewish Christians uh, to the authorities because the, the Roman authorities, they expected once a year everybody in town to line up, kind of like election day. But what you had to do, you had you go through the line and then you had to make a, an oath, a worship oath to Caesar, hailing Caesar as God on which Caesar was. And, and the Jewish uh, people took advantage of that against Christian, so I think Jewish people especially, who became Christians, and turned them in to the authorities. And, and in Smyrna, uh, they could be killed for that. And so uh, here, though, it's a little, you have a little strength, and they didn't, you know, you can see the temptation just to back away from that. But here, uh, they stand strong and they are faithful. They never, ever deny him. You know, and I hope, you know, and I know we're all weak, perhaps, in that sense. But if somebody put a gun to my head and said, uh, stop believing in God or Jesus or the Bible, I'd hope 
they would say, I would say, no, I'm not going to stop believing those things. I hope I would be firm. If they put a gun to my head and said, quit being a Baptist, because I'm a Baptist, I would say, well, show me Christ's life, cross life Bible church. You know, let me go somewhere else. Show me the Presbyterian church. You know, there's some things that I'll die for, some things I won't die for. Uh, but the main thing, who's the Messiah? The very essence of who you are. I'm a follower of Jesus. I hope I would never deny that. Uh, but people put up against it with their life on the line sometimes too, and, but they did not. So they're faithful. Jesus knows all about their faithfulness and uh, what they have endured. And then Jesus loves. A picture of a wedding to kind of illustrate love. Jesus' love of the church will be made evident to those who persecute Christians. Notice what he says in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. I think that's the Jewish Christians. This uh, in uh, Smyrna, I think, and in this church, uh, you have those mentioned. Who say they are Jews and are not. They're not true followers of, of the God of the Old Testament because they've rejected the Messiah. But lie. Indeed, I will make them come. This is unbelieving Jews, not all Jews. Come, and it's, and it's those who are persecuting them, not just Jew in general. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. Jesus loves the church. Just like he has an everlasting love for Israel, he loves the church. Go over to Ephesians 5. Now, every husband likes me to start in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. Uh, but that's, uh, that's not where I'm going to start. I'm going to start in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's a passage that we read a lot at weddings. The analogy between marriage and the relationship of Christ and the church, which is called what? His bride. And so Jesus loves the church. And it's not just this church. He loves all seven of these churches. He loves uh, the churches who do bad. He loves the churches that do well. And so he loves us. 
But notice the promises, verses 10 and 11. And there are two promises. The first promise is the church is exempt from the time of testing or tribulation, period. It says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's the first promise. Now, uh, there's that beginning phrase, because you have kept my command to persevere. There's, the Greek is a bit awkward there. It could be attached to the previous verse. To know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere, period. And then it starts again with another sentence. It's a little awkward in the Greek. But regardless, what's the pledge from God? I will keep you from the hour of trial, the time of testing. Well, that is described beginning in cha the four chapter. Next chapter is chapter four. Chapter four and five is the introduction to it. And in chapter six, it starts to hit the fan throughout all the way till Jesus comes in chapter 19. It's a coming tribulation period, seven years time of testing. And I'm going to keep you from that, and I take it, going to keep you out of that. The idea is keep you out of that. There is the view out there that, no, that's not right. He said, I'm going to keep you through that. I'm going to guard you through that. Okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, believers won't die during that time? Well, if you read the text, many believers do die during that time. Does it mean they're not going to lose their salvation during that time? Well, that's true all the time. That's not much of a promise. Um, just exactly what does it mean? You know, uh, the point really is, I'm going to keep you out of not just the testing, but the time of the testing. So the entire time is not for the church. That's God's plan. This is one of the strongest passages that I think leads to the conclusion of a pre-trib rapture. Now, it doesn't teach a pre-trib rapture. It teaches an exemption from the trib for the church, but that implies a pre-trib rapture. Uh, the other passage is 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, you have the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, you have the day of the Lord. And you've got to find out. Remember the day of the Lord? We talked last night. It's not a technical term. That means the, uh, the same thing every time you find it in the Bible. So what is it in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2? And the key is in verse 3, you always go to context, right? What's the most important thing? Context, context, and context. Uh, in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it mentions time of peace and safety. Time of peace and safety. You know, are they, are the people are crying out. They're wanting peace and safety. Well, where do we have that? Um, or are they crying out, we have peace and safety? Which one is it? I think they're crying out, we've got peace and safety. And if you look at, if you have a, believe in a post-trib rapture, Jesus coming back at the end of the trib to rapture the church, well, they're in the middle of Armageddon. That's not a time of peace and safety. If you have it uh, pre-wrath rapture and somewhere in the second half of the trib, that's in the middle of the bold judgments. That's not really helpful. And then you have Mid-trib, what's happened before that? The battle, king of the north, king of the south, and some of those things. Uh, war is the second seal in the first half. Uh, so none of them, you come to the beginning of the trib, and there's a peace treaty. 
And so as leading into the trip, people are saying we have peace and safety. And so the only one that really fits is the pre-trib rapture. And so uh, the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 is all seven years. And according to that passage, we're exempt from it in verse 9. Uh, so those two sections, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and Revelation 3 here, are the two strongest passages for a pre-trib rapture in the Bible. Um, you have a few others, though, that you can uh, talk about, John 14 and, and, and those kind of passages. But I, that's a little extra. I won't charge you for that. You can buy my commentary to see the details on 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 um, there. But you can also just read the Bible and get it. Okay. So, uh, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon, notice who it comes upon, the whole world. It's, that is almost a technical term in the book of Revelation, the earth dwellers, the whole world, that's the earth dwellers. And they're always unbelievers throughout the book of Revelation unbelievers, to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay. So the church will miss by tribulation, or miss the tribulation by death, or by rapture. Uh, it's interesting if you have a post if, you, if the idea is guard through the trib, well, that doesn't have any application to the original audience because they're dead. And it needs to mean something for the original audience. Uh, so I think the idea is exemption, which either by death or by rapture, you're exempt. Then the second promise is in verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Remember last night we talked about, okay, coming quickly. 2,000 years almost? Is that quickly? You know, some of us take that. Uh, the word quickly sometimes in the book of Revelation is debated. Is it a... It's an adverb. Is it an adverb of time, meaning soon? Or is it an adverb of manner, that when he comes, it's sudden? Uh, some take that approach. But even if it's an adverb of time, and it kind of has the idea of soon, now remember, we talked last night from Second Peter 3 that uh, God doesn't count time like we count time. A thousand years as a day, a day as a thousand years. So it's, it's right on time by God's clock. We're the ones who want to hit the fast-forward button. Uh, but God, God probably doesn't have a fast-forward button. Remember, he's not bound by time, so he doesn't need it. Uh, so he is coming back quickly, but notice uh, why, uh, or what he emphasizes. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And here I think the word crown refers to rewards. There are two main parables that deal with rewards. The parable of the minas, Luke 19. The parable of talents, Matthew 25. You kind of remember those, don't you? You've read those in the Bible. Uh, in, in the parable of the minas, I actually call it the parable of delay. The reason that parable is given is that Jesus is, you know, the next thing in the text is the uh, march into Jerusalem in the Palm, on Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry. Uh, and they're going to hail him as king. And he tells them this parable right before that because the text says there in verse 11 of uh, Luke 19, because some thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. And he tells the parable, say, no, there's going to be a delay, not from God's point of view, but from your expectations. See, they want it now. 
but from your expectations, it's going to be later. And so Jesus tells the story of the nobleman that goes into a far country to receive authority, you know, to get permission to rule. So Jesus is leaving to go, go to the Father, and then he's going to come back. But what does he do in the meantime? He leaves people with minas, or in the parable of talents, with talents. You know, these are, uh, mina is a little statuette, heavy weight that's used in bartering, like cash. And a talent is a, perhaps a coin uh, that's used for uh, bartering and stuff. So he leaves that stuff with folks, and, and they're supposed to occupy, be busy serving him, his servants, until he comes back. And when he comes back, he meets with his servants, and he says, you've done well, and so you rule over 10 cities. You've done well, you rule over five cities. Well, what cities? Well, I won't, and if you're Gentile, you won't rule any cities in Israel. Because that's been given to whom? Jewish people. Now, I'm an Alabama boy, I've asked for Birmingham and Tuscaloosa. And uh, people have said, I can have it. <laughs> so who knows if those cities even exist? Who knows if America will even exist? We don't know. We don't know all that stuff. But you get, we get to rule. Jesus describes it in administrative terms. Now, they're all the guy that does it, messes up, and you don't get to rule over any cities. Okay, you might be under somebody in some city, but you're not going to rule a city. And so there is this idea. Listen, I want, this is, I want you to listen to this carefully. Whether or not we are in God's coming kingdom is a matter of grace through faith. We cannot earn our way into God's coming kingdom. We have to trust Christ for deliverance so we can be in God's coming kingdom. But the role that we play in the coming kingdom is determined by how well we perform our Christian lives today. Do you guys understand that difference? Okay. And so Christ is coming back to give rewards. And he, he knows what the church in Philadelphia has done. And he knows what you and I have done. God has been tracking all of us for 2,000 years. He knows all things. He's the creator. He controls every breath that we breathe. And it is his vision that when Jesus comes, takes us to heaven for a little party of judgment. We'll come back with him, start in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with him in various ways based upon the rewards that he has granted to us. Christians today, I don't think they often think about their lives relative to the rewards that are coming. I mean, uh, somebody, some people complain about the idea of giving incentives to children to encourage them to do things when they need to learn how to do things just because they're right. So don't, don't train them like a dog and give them some candy if they do well, you know. I don't know. God holds out incentives. There's rewards. And Jesus says, pay attention to that. And so the church... We have a future, but our future, every individual is not going to sit at the same level in God's coming kingdom. Yes, it's going to be great. You're going to have a resurrected body. 
I'll probably have hair unless everybody's bald. I don't know how that's going to be. We're, we're going to have resurrected bodies that can't sin. It's going to be nice not to put up with yourself. <laughs> and, they, and we have bodies that can never get sick and die. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next hour. Um, but that's God's plan for us. That's true of everybody. But then our, you know, we're going to be busy. What do you think we're going to be? Wear a diaper, sit on a cloud, and play a harp for the rest of our lives? That's not the plan of God. He has some exciting projects for us to do. I think some of them will be individual, some of them will be group projects, and there's going to be a hierarchy of things. And so God holds out rewards. Do your best uh, so that you can engage in the highest way in God's coming kingdom. So again, there's the map. Israel, the church, the trib, and when the kingdom gets here, the church will be in the kingdom just like Israel is in the kingdom. But then Jesus guarantees. That's our last point. And this is my favorite point. So I may camp out here and jump around a little. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He who overcomes. This is a person who has faith in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Same human author of the book of Revelation. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The overcomers are those people who have trusted Jesus. The overcomers are those who are saved. Uh, there are some interpreters who take this as um, believers who have done well in their Christian life and it's talking about rewards again. I don't think so. I think the previous verse about crowns is rewards. I think this is something that is true for every single believer. Notice how he says it. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And notice that phrase, my God, occurs four times in this verse. Temple of my God, name of my God, city of my God, coming down out of heaven from my God. Four times. Jesus is pointing us to the Father. And it's a word of special relationship. Now, the pillar, what's all that about? Made a pillar in the temple of my God. I think the phrase, the next phrase helps explain that. And he shall go out no more. There's a background here historically. You know, Jesus was a master teacher. Would everybody agree with that that's a Christian in here? I mean, he was great at using analogies from nature, analogies from history. He was just really great. And here's one from history uh, that uh, you really have to study the commentaries to, to get it. But the Church of Philadelphia was prone to a lot of earthquakes. And in the early first century, the city was destroyed and had to be rebuilt, and they needed uh, Roman help to do it. 
later on, um, uh, they could do a little bit better uh, with that, but for decades after the earthquake destroyed the city, it took them a long time to rebuild. People would not live in the city. They were still Philadelphians, but they would live out in the fields around the city. And then sometimes for various things, they dart back into the city, afraid the walls are going to fall on them, you know, and then dart back out. And they lived in tents out in the, you know, out under the stars. So they were going out, in and out. And what does Jesus say to them? I promise to Christians, you're going to be a pillar. And a pillar, you know, he's, he's given a picture of something that has strength and stability. Unlike the earthquake that had destroyed the city and everything was precarious that was still standing and all the rubble all around. said, so you're, no, you're not like that. My, my people, pillars in the temple. I think the whole point is the presence of God. Uh, you're going to be there with me like a pillar. The certainty of our future in the presence of the Lord. I think it's interesting when Jesus brings out those little side bits, and he does it in every one of the churches. In uh, Thyatira, for example. And I, that's probably everybody's favorite church in the seven churches, Thyatira. Um, he, he identifies himself as the Son of God. It's the only one, in fact, it's the only time in the book of Revelation where he uses the title Son of God for himself. And you go, why would he do that with, in Thyatira, of all places? Thyatira was probably one of the smallest of the cities. Uh, but Thyatira had a special... You know, all the different cities had a god or the god, goddesses that they worshipped. In Ephesus, it was Artemis, the lady, Diana. And they had a giant temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Giant temple to Diana, to Artemis. And all the different cities had a kind of a chosen, adopted patron god. Well, in Thyatira, it was Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus in Greek mythology. And so the people in Thyatira were running around saying uh, they worship the Son of God. So Jesus tells the Thyatiran Christians, he called himself the Son of God. You know, you know who the real Son of God is. This is the one talking to the real Son of God, not the fake Son of God. But then, uh, this is especially Warm, I think, back in the letter to the Philadelphians. We will be given new names. Now, my name is Michael. Uh, the archangel is named after me. <laughs> One who is like God. That's what that word means. You know, all the words have meanings, you know. Um, our names are important. My last name, Stallard, Stallworth, comes from that kind of background, English, uh, implying strength, stability, and those kind of things. So you know, sometimes we like our names, sometimes we don't. Um, it says, I will write on him the name of my God. 
Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to write on me the name Yahweh or Jehovah? I mean, that's one of the names of God. But they're like, you know, 30 names of God given in the Old Testament. Um, and of course, I like one name of my God is Jesus. So what is the name of God that he means he doesn't really say? But then, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. So he's going to write that name on us, and that's our home. We'll get to travel around and, like I said, exercise authority over Birmingham and Tuscaloosa. But that city's my home, which comes down out of heaven from God. And then, and I will write on him my new name. Jesus has a new name. What's he talking about? Okay, hold your place right there and go over to Revelation chapter 19. In the second coming passage, in Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And you come down to verse 12, in the middle of that verse, notice what it says, he, talking about this rider on the white horse, who is Christ, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Jesus had a secret name between him and God, the Father. Is he going to let us know that name? Now, a little bit later, it says uh, in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. Well, that's, he's already been known as that in John 1.1, so that's probably not uh, the secret name. And then down in verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Maybe that's the name. Unfortunately, back in Revelation chapter 3, he doesn't tell us exactly. I will write on him my new name or what that is. What is all this about names? It's actually very Jewish. You know, they're almost superstitious about the name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, as we would say. You know, not pronouncing it, using Adonai, or sometimes they just call it the name. I have, there's a new Bible, the Israel Bible, that I purchased, uh, given by, it's Old Testament only, by Jewish rabbis, made by commentary Bible by Jewish rabbis. And everywhere there's the word Yahweh. We, in our Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. Uh, and they just, they have the name. The name. The name. The French Bibles, they use the phrase, the eternal one, for that. And so, is that uh, what that is? That's certainly who he is uh, in that respect. But name is very Jewish. But I think if you go over to chapter 2, the personal side of this comes out. Look in verse 17. This is the letter to Pergamos, the church at Pergamos. And he was, had some things that were very not, not nice that he said to them. A 
And he said, but he says here something positive. To him who overcomes, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written. And notice this, which no one knows except him who receives it. I want you to think about that for a minute. So if you're a believer in Jesus, one day, when the time comes, and you're in the new heavens and new earth, maybe before, you're going to receive a secret name between you and God. Do you understand how seriously God loves you as an individual? That every single believer throughout history has a secret name with God. He just doesn't love people generally. He loves people specifically. See, he loves the Jewish people. Yes, he makes general statements, but he loves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the individuals that make up the nation. And he loves the church generally, yes. But he loves individual Christians. And this is a statement of eternity. It's like his personal stamp that you belong to me and nothing is going to take that away. And my guess is you will never slip up and tell someone else what your secret name is. If you do, we'll have to give you another name. He deeply loves you. And so as we think through that, uh, these names, we have a relationship through faith, grace through faith, with the very one who created us. And that God loves us more than we know. And he wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. That's the destiny of the church, to be with him. He'll come and rapture us. Those who have died before the rapture will get raised and go up with us. They were alive and remain. And the Bible says we shall ever be with the Lord. Never ever from that moment on We'll be in heaven, then we'll come back to earth for the millennium and then the eternal state. There will be no time in there where the presence of the Lord is not with us. Now we see darkly and we feel the presence of the Lord partially. Then it'll be full. Talk more about that in the next hour. But I'm so thankful that God has a heart for the church. You see, there are two programs. Yeah, we call the people of God those who know the Lord, no matter where they are in history. There are peoples who are not in Israel and not in the church. The people in Genesis, before there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not in the church and they're not in Israel. You have people in the trib, I call them trib saints, the people who come to God during the trib. Some of them are Jewish, okay, they could be in Israel, but then there's the Gentile trib saints. They're not in Israel nor in the church. But in the millennium, there's some people who come to to the Lord, during that time. Some of them may be Jewish, some of them uh, Gentile. 
And so you have groupings of people who are neither in those two main things, Israel and the church, but those are the two big programs of God uh, given in the Bible throughout history. And God loves Israel and he loves the church so deeply that he will never get over it and neither will you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for your written word. We thank you for the grand future that you have placed in front of us. We thank you for how you watch over everything that happens to us right now. We thank you for everything you did for us in the past, especially the cross and dealing with our sins so that we'd have hope in this life. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to see how deeply you love us. Help us to come back to these texts and remember them and dig them into our hearts, Lord, that we would understand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.